Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, presenting the creme de la creme of this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, we have a Big Brother bus stop in Nigeria, dodgy stats in North Korea, and the film that pits online reviewers against the Chinese government. But first, courting Russia was our cover line this week. Donald Trump's unusually friendly tone towards Vladimir Putin was a major talking point in the campaign, and it now looks to be translated into policy. But as our leader argued bringing a new era to the US's relationship with Russia is easier said than done. George W. Bush looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and thought he saw his soul. He was wrong. Barack Obama attempted to reset relations with Russia, but by the end of his term in office, Russia had annexed Crimea, stirred up conflict elsewhere in Ukraine and filled the power vacuum that Mr. Obama had left in Syria. Donald Trump appears to want to go much further and forge an entirely new strategic alignment with Russia. Can he succeed, or will he be the third American president in a row to be outfoxed by Mr Putin? Adding to the uncertainty is the lack of clarity regarding Mr Trump's plan of action. The details of Mr Trump's realignment are still vague and changeable. That is partly because of disagreements in his inner circle – even as his ambassador to the UN offered clear and strong condemnation of Russia's aggressive actions in Ukraine, the president's bromance with Mr Putin was still smouldering. Nonetheless, some sense of what the president is looking for has emerged, with the president's advisers reportedly hopeful that the US and Russia can team up against Islamic State, that Russia can be convinced to abandon collaboration with Iran and stop fomenting conflict in Ukraine, and even help curb Chinese expansion. So... What's not to like? Pretty much everything. Russian hacking may have helped Mr Trump at the polls, but that does not mean he can trust Mr Putin. The Kremlin's interests and America's are worlds apart. Our leader argued that the US risks going after unrealistic goals while making disproportionate concessions. The quest for a grand bargain with Mr Putin is delusional. No matter how great a negotiator Mr Trump is, no good deal is to be had. Indeed, an overlooked risk is that Mr Trump, double-crossed and thin-skinned, will end up presiding over a dangerous and destabilising falling out with Mr Putin. Better than either a bargain or a falling out would be to work at the small things to improve America's relations with Russia. This might include arms control and stopping Russian and American forces accidentally coming to blows. Congressional Republicans and his more sensible advisers, such as his Secretaries of State and Defence, should strive to convince Mr Trump of this. The alternative would be very bad indeed. Of course, the alternative facts might paint a rosier picture. So at least we have that to look forward to. In the meantime, we head over to our China section, where a famous American face is promising to defend a wall from an alien threat, this time 
It's Matt Damon. Chinese cinema goers are used to the government's tight grip on the film industry. To boost audiences for homegrown productions, the authorities have recently tried a new form of control, clamping down on unflattering reviews. Long-suffering film fans see this as a step too far. And it's Mr. Damon who's now found himself in the middle of the fallout. Their anger erupted in December after the release of *The Great Wall*, a Chinese-made fantasy starring an American actor, Matt Damon. Xinhua, an official news agency, praised the film as innovative and accused its many online detractors in China of giving it a hard time just for the sake of it. A few days later, *People's Daily*, the party's main mouthpiece, weighed in. It said low ratings on Chinese websites for the Great Wall, which opens in America on February 17th, and for two other Chinese films, had been the result of malicious reviews and the manipulation of data. However, these arguments didn't go down well. Netizens were incensed. One online comment that got 24,000 likes read, "That's right. We don't have bad films in China, just bad audiences." Surprisingly, both Xinhua and People's Daily appeared to back down. And China's film fans may now hope that allowing for audience honesty online might lead to a more reflective movie industry. Many filmgoers suspect the two organisations had been miffed by the poor performance of Chinese films relative to foreign ones. For the official media, it had seemed easier to shoot the messenger than examine why state-supervised studios are churning out so many films that audiences do not want to see. But it's time to head from the big screen to the small one, where there's still big trouble for Big Brother in Nigeria. The Nigerian edition of Big Brother has the same mix of narcissism, banality, and backstabbing found in every other version of the show. But an extra controversy was added to the fallouts and flirtations when Nigerians learned that their program, in which contestants are locked in a house and filmed 24/7, was being made in South Africa. An information minister appealed for calm, but the makers of the show were bullish. Multi-Choice, the production company behind Big Brother Niger, was unapologetic, pointing out that it was easier and more cost-effective to stage the show in its existing house in Johannesburg. The reality show row reflects deeper tensions between the two nations. This is just the latest spat between Nigeria and South Africa as they spar for economic supremacy in the continent. In 2015, Nigeria slapped MTN, a South African mobile phone company, with a billion-dollar fine for failing to disconnect unregistered SIM cards, which it claimed could have been used by the jihadist fighters of Boko Haram. On the cultural front, District Nine, a South African-directed film released in 2009, depicted Nigerians eating the flesh of and prostituting themselves to aliens. But it's in the cultural arena that Nigeria truly has the upper hand. Dystopian sci-fi movies aside, Nigeria dominates entertainment. Africans devour Nollywood films, and Nigerian pop music fills dance floors across the continent. Far from being offended, many Nigerians simply see the bother over Big Brother as a wake-up call to their government, and further proof, if any were needed, that their country is a tough place to do business. But if you're looking for a tough place to do business, you can't do tougher than North Korea. As we head over to an article in our finance section that tackles the thorny problem of measuring an economy that refuses to be monitored.
Facts about the North Korean economy are not so much alternative as non-existent. The country has never published a statistical yearbook. If it did, no one would believe it. Nicholas Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank, calls analysis of its economy essentially pre-quantitative. One strategy is to use non-economic data to make educated guesses as to the underlying economic reality. A recent paper by Suk E of the Korea Development Institute, a South Korean government think tank, puts a new spin on this approach. It estimates North Korea's national income by comparing the share of its households that use solid fuels for cooking with that in other lower-income countries. Assuming the numbers bear some relation to reality, they put North Korea in line with countries such as Uganda and Haiti and suggest that North Korea's purchasing power-adjusted income per person was somewhere between $948 and $1,361 in 2008. But it may not be North Korea's poverty that most befuddles statisticians. Rather, it could be burgeoning growth. North Korea's economy has made great strides since the country's famine in the 1990s. The government has tacitly allowed the market economy to grow. Although the rest of the country is still indisputably poor, visitors to Pyongyang at least cannot help but note the rise of shops and taxis. The paradox is that as the North Korean economy modernises, the data may actually be deteriorating. Welcome though it is for poor North Koreans, growth may be bad for statisticians. If they want a distraction, there's always Economist Radio, as we take a look back at our coverage from the last week, where our money talk show dug into the explosion of on-demand entertainment. You can win uh, with your, uh, your multi-talented cat, but it is like winning, a lo- winning the lottery. The real winner is the platform that hosts you. So YouTube wins either way. As arguments rage about how to tell fact from fiction, I sat down with Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales to talk about crowdsourcing knowledge on our Babbage show. When do you trust a source? When do you not? That becomes a very complex judgment. And just as it would be a complex judgment for any journalist to figure out uh, if a source is reliable or not, there are no magic answers here. And so we do talk about it a lot. We struggle with it. We think about it. We took a deep dive into the Russia question on The Economist Asks. The kind of things that Vladimir Putin wants out of this are things that are extremely valuable and that Trump may not realise just how valuable they are. I would think that if he does anything that is against the American interest with Putin, anything that reeks of being naive or endangering of our allies, that the checks and balances are going to kick in. And the week ahead looked at China's transgender Oprah. And so when she describes herself as a little Chinese boy thirsting for the West... She's talking about an experience which a lot of Chinese people have. But it's time to head from one unusual entertainer to another, as an obituary in our science and technology section looked back on the life of a remarkable scientist. Statistics has not traditionally been an exciting word. Its most common prefix is the word dry. That is a shame. Tables of figures may look dull, but they are a better guide to what is happening in the world than anything on television or in the press. Hans Rosling had no time for the idea that statistics were boring. A learned specialist in global health, he had a knack for catching the public eye. He was a natural showman. 
In 2007, he finished a talk on global development with a demonstration of sword swallowing, ingesting a Swedish army bayonet live on stage. With this and other dramatic tactics, Dr Rosling attracted attention for his statistically driven and refreshingly optimistic view of the world. His stock in trade was debunking gloomy stereotypes about poor countries and economic development. There were five surprising facts, for instance, that he loved to hammer home. Population growth is slowing rapidly. The divide between the global rich and poor is blurring. Humans are living much longer than 50 years ago. Many more girls are getting an education. And the number of people in extreme poverty fell by a billion between 1980 and 2013. Dr Rosling's talent was to make those facts sing, to remind his audience that these dry-sounding numbers are, in fact, the sum total of billions of real lives that are better than they would have been half a century ago. However, Dr Rosling himself was sceptical about how much impact he had really made. People seemed to cling to their gloomy, wrong assumptions about the world. In 2013, in an interview with The Guardian, he reflected, When we asked the Swedish population how many children are born per woman in Bangladesh, they still think it's four to five. In reality, the numbers have not been that high for 20 years. The current rate is 2.3, less than South Africa, and only slightly higher than New Zealand. But for a cheerier view of the informed public, we go finally to our letters to the editor section, where Nina Weiratilo took our Schumpeter columnist to task. The contest between shareholders and the people is a phrase best saved for a populist rally. Shareholder value does not come in shades of grey. It comes in numbers, such as return on equity or on invested capital. And as long as the use of creative accounting is limited, it is very unlike the economist to propose that such a hard data approach should be disdained. Meanwhile, for reader David Chaplin, one data is as good as another. While you are considering the advice of Geoffrey Pullum to allow split infinitives, letters January 21st, may I suggest you also have another look at your dogged insistence on treating data as a plural. It hasn't been a proper plural for at least the past two decades. Throughout the English-speaking world, it has become a mass noun, like water or sand. The singular, datum, has clearly followed agendum into complete disuse, a single piece of data now being a bit. And Donald Jackson wrote in with further thoughts on Latin words. I enjoyed Lexington's observation that Populist insurgencies are rarely defeated with slogans in Latin. In recent days, however, I'm reminded that they sometimes can be explained by slogans in Latin. Mundus vult decipi. Meaning that the world wants to be deceived. But if you don't, join us next week when we return with another undeceptive tasting menu. And if you've any thoughts before we go, do tweet us at Economist Radio or send us an email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. 
Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.